Hey everyone, Greg here. And Helen. It's both of us. And we are, man, today we have like the best, coolest guest on the Eater Upsell. It's Anthony Bourdain. Which is, uh, okay, like we're done with the podcast now. Though we're not actually done with the podcast, we'll have future episodes. And speaking of future episodes, a cool thing you could do if you haven't already done it is, first of all, make sure you're subscribed. Um, Just hit that little subscribe button and you will have brand new episodes of the Eater Upsell automatically appear on your listening device. And leave us five stars on iTunes and and maybe like write a little note on iTunes about how much you love us. I mean, that would just be the best thing. But you know what else is the best thing is the fact that Anthony Bourdain is on the Eater Upsell today. Anthony Bourdain is on the Eater Upsell today. Can we just like say that sentence 20 times? I just love, I love hearing all those words together. And you know what? I loved hearing this interview because I actually, this was all you. It was you, Helen, talking to Anthony Bourdain. Yeah, it was the, the two of us sat down in the Eater Upsell studio and we, we fell deeply in love. You found the brain cell that you share. The one. The one. Well, Greg, you actually make a cameo appearance in this episode too. Weighing in for the lightning round. If you stick around, yeah. Buckle your seatbelts, Upsell Kateers, because Anthony Bourdain is in the studio, the Eater Upsell studio, where in fact, he saw a copy of his brand new cookbook, Appetites, for the first time ever, right before we hit record on this interview. So it's going to be a hell of a ride. Here we go. The book was definitely designed to be an object that you could hold. I mean, we wanted it to look... Uh, strange and awesome and uh, do you know two major chains I will not mention them mention them uh, objected so ferociously to the cover that we have a special edition that looks like this with a plain white wrapper really uh, yeah they, they they found the Stedman cover off-putting felt they couldn't sell it in their stores and uh, required us to wrap it in a plain white wrapper there are no dicks on this cover uh, are there are there secret no, dicks? No, no. It just it's this the 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 violent splatter of uh, Ralph Steadman uh, upset their worldview. I, it's a really striking cover for a cookbook. Um, I'm really look. I'm really proud of it, and the whole point was we don't want this to look like a cookbook. But it is a cookbook, which is yeah. interesting. Um, this is your thir- fourth cookbook. Just second, just second. Yeah. After the Lazal book, yes. right? Yeah. But you've written many other books, um, mm-hmm. including. Probably most famously, Kitchen Confidential, but also you've written fiction. Uh, three crime novels, uh, a, a biography of Typhoid Mary, a couple of comic books. Yeah. Uh, yeah, bunch of stuff. But this book, Appetites, yeah. a cookbook. And I should point out, uh, I did this with uh, Lori Wooliver, yeah. uh, who, you know, uh, I don't want to say was essential to the book. It goes way beyond that. I mean, really, you know, co writer from the very, very beginning. Uh, wouldn't have even thought about doing it if uh, Lori wasn't all in. Having a good collaborator is the most important thing. Yeah, well, we work together a lot. She's had a long and glorious uh, career, uh, most of it uncredited, uh, writing and editing cookbooks and uh, working with me. So, uh, How'd you two hook up? I think on the first cookbook uh, I was working on, I needed help and I needed an assistant and uh, director of special operations and... Uh, We've had a very happy working relationship since. That's great. Well, congratulations on the book. I mean, it really, it really, the the Stenman cover is, what what is what is this a picture of? It's like a lot of angry faces. And- I never asked. I mean, uh, was very grateful initially when I asked him to do the cover. He said, "No, I just don't have time, and I don't really have the inspiration. I don't know what I do." And the next day, oh, I get an email of like a, a splatter, <laughs> and the day after that, the splatter has grown into. 
something else. And every day I watched the thing coming together as he slowly became inspired. And uh, and then I started to get other work. He just started sending me not just a uh, unrelated works of art, but actual physical prints. I would in the mail, like tube after tube of these gorgeous uh, limited edition uh, uh, Stedman uh, prints and originals. So you know, my you know my whole office is filled with them now, which is you know heaven for me. That's incredible. He's a hero of mine, so it was really an adventure. It, it makes sense to me that he's um, that he's working with you, that you guys are connected f- through this book, because he is, I think, so incredibly famous for his collaboration with Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. And that whole, I guess, the genesis of this idea of gonzo journalism, where you just throw yourself in and you see what the fuck happens. And Very important book for me. I mean, I think I read uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I must have been 12, 13 when it first started being serialized in Rolling Stone magazine, which was a very different uh, magazine back then. And it was just a kind of a cataclysmic event for me. I mean, no one had written like that before. And those and the illustrations were such an important part of it. And it expressed all my anger and rage and frustration and 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 as well as the humor of these really awful, awful times, uh, both uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas and then later uh, Campaign Trail. And I think it's obvious if you read my stuff how how besotted I was with Thompson, maybe overly so, but 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 uh those books are really important and Ralph's art was very important to me. Do you see a through line between that style of gonzo journalism and the work that you do now? I think I'd be flattering myself uh, overly if I said that. I, I would say it was a, certainly an inspiration. It was a, a kind of a liberating. Uh, it made me. Uh, it made me fall in love with hyperbole, in a way that uh, the power of hyperbole and and the beauty, potential beauty of hyperbole that was, you know, I, I think. I try to echo. I feel like now we have to like say really hyperbolic things like we've set ourselves up to. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like this. I, and now, of course, I can't think of any. Yeah, I, no. <laughs> I'm constantly hyper. I have literally I have a, a print hanging on the wall in my bedroom that says H is for hyperbole because I am prone to being somewhat extreme in my statements. And now that we have talked about hyperbole, I can't think of a goddamn thing. It'll come to us at an inappropriate moment, I'm sure. <laughs> sure we'll be having a really somber <laughs> moment. <laughs> And one of us will say something just like insultingly extreme. Um, I mean, now that we're talking about gonzo journalism, I, mean, I think one of the one of the things that is interesting about gonzo journalism as a style of journalism is the question of whether it's journalism. I think mm-hmm. that uh, its critics said that there was too much of the writer and there was too much subjectivity and that there is a certain sort of purity of truth that true journalism has to contain that gonzo journalism couldn't do. And, you know, I have like this note scrawled down here of a question to ask you. Do you think of yourself as a journalist? No, I do not. Why not? Um, I don't feel qualified. I don't feel interested. Uh, I don't want to feel restrained uh, by that title. Uh, I see myself as an essayist, maybe. Even in television, like a visual essayist? uh, Yeah, yeah. I'm a storyteller essayist, um, but I'm always speaking from my point of view. My my point of view always comes first. It's always subjective. And and I think that's that's the only way I can write and the only way I should write, probably. How does your writing connect to your on-camera work? You know, it's the same thing. You're telling a story. When you write a story on paper, you're trying to get the reader to feel a certain way. You know, you want them to feel how you felt at the time if you're telling something that happened that you saw or you you experienced, um, or you want to drive them to a certain 
opinion or way of looking at things. It's the same, you know, when I go someplace with a camera crew and I come back with a bunch of footage. While I'm there, I'm working with my producers to think about what shots, what style, what music, how do we use all of these additional tools because the strange and terrible powers of television are really exciting to me. You can much more easily make someone feel sentimental or angry or frightened. Um, it's I'm not going to say it's child's play, but when you when you have the additional tools of an editing room, the cutaway shot, music, these are so powerful and helpful in getting to make people feel a certain way. You know, just the cutaway. Uh, what you, there's a great the classic Eisenstein uh, example of the, I think it's the crying baby, that they cut to a, a different facial expressions that you, you feel about that, about these people, just however they might have been filmed in isolation and actually reacting to the fact that they seem to be reacting to a crying baby. You think they're either monstrous or really nice, you know, completely dependent on what the image you've seen before. Um, I take full advantage of those things and I, I enjoy using them. I mean, it is all about context, I guess. Yeah, but it's a, look, it's a very manipulative, writing is manipulative, speaking is manipulative. That's sort of the whole point. Um, but television, uh, and film are very, very manipulative. And I think uh, it's useful to acknowledge that regardless of whether it's journalism or not. Uh, and I don't even want to think about what, what journalism might require because I'm really enjoying that manipulative aspect. I embrace it and I think about exactly that all the time. I think that journalism is just as manipulative as anything else. It just often wraps itself in the fiction that it isn't. Yeah. It pretends to be telling the truth, but there's no such thing as truth. I mean, we can get very existential. But yeah, like, I mean, you know, the classic examples, you know, the cutaway to the, the charred teddy bear, you know, the, you know the, of, of, of uh, you know, anything terrible. I mean, come on, that is, that's a cutaway. Yeah. And it's, uh, or I've done interviews, many interviews on, you know, reputable news magazines where at the end of the interview they shoot all the cutaways of the, of the host sitting there nodding with a with a with a variety of facial expressions oh that's so interesting nod you know solemn face happy face ho 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 uh, oh that's you know tear up i mean it really kind of takes the air out of uh, the whole enterprise i was in like the studio audience of a cooking show once like many many years ago this show that totally failed to get any traction and they had us do that at the end of filming the episode they were yeah. like you know pretend that you can like see what's in the pot like all of you should be horrified now and it's right. it's they shoot all the laughing cutaways at the emmys ahead of time they get the entire audience like trained seals clapping and howling and laughing and and ooing and eyeing and they get all of that out of the way first because by the end of the Emmys, no one's actually in the audience. They're all uh, people who who fill the seats. Uh, they're, they're they're seat fillers. Everyone's hanging out like backstage or in the lobby, like yeah. any good party. Well, they're they're gone. They're they're back at the hotel. I mean, uh, they have at least uh, you know by the time they get to you know best single camera prosthetics in a non dramatic you know series. <laughs> <Yeah>. Believe me, <laughs> they're either at the bar or home. It's all the secrets. I mean, you, you know, you can't. Trust the media, I guess. I mean, <laughs> but who else is there? <laughs> oh, no, it's the great tragedy of our lives. It's, we're all part of the horrible cycle of. I don't even know. I mean, it's just. I admire your dark world view. <laughs> I, I definitely. We're going to just turn this into a therapy session about my self doubt. It's going to be terrific. Um, Works for me. But let's get back to the yeah. cookbook, um, which is an interesting addition to, and you can like throw 
your coffee in my face for saying the phrase I'm about to say, your personal brand. Mm -hmm. Because I think for many of your fans, of whom there are an extraordinary number, you're not really thought of as a home cook. Right. And suddenly here's this book where you are making this powerful case for the pleasures of cooking for your family and cooking Mm -hmm. for yourself and being at home and not like eating a taco at a taco stand under a hill of bullet fire from a Mexican drug cartel or whatever it is that your your sort of um, like legion of bros think that look, you do all day. I, 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 it's a perverse instinct on one hand. Uh, and it's something I've tried to do throughout my career is whatever people expect me to do, I, 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 I kind of, I'm always looking to do the other thing. Um, you know, if they expect me to be running around in a leather jacket with a thumb ring forever, I'm not going to do that, you know? Um and I thought this was sort of the most unexpected thing I could do. But at the same time, it's also an honest expression of my life for the last nine years. Uh, when I'm home, I'm not going out to dinner. I'm not going out to a club or hanging out at bars or seeing live music. Or you know, I don't know what people might think or expect me to be doing back in New York, but I'm probably that's not what I'm doing. I'm going to bed at 9 o'clock, 9.30 when my nine-year-old is, is, is tired enough to sleep. Uh, I wake up super early in the morning and I uh, m- uh, make her uh, breakfast. Uh, I pack a little lunch for her. Uh, I pick her up at school, if at all, if, if my schedule permitting, uh, and, I, and I cook dinner for her. And most of those major food choice decisions are made in my, my nine-year-old daughter, uh, one with a fairly daring palate, I have to say, as it turned out. She likes uh, variety. I don't know if you've seen Eat, Drink, Man, Woman. Yeah. In much the same way, you know, that's a story of a dysfunctional family uh, where the grandfather is trying. The only way he can really express love is by cooking. And uh, the only way the the others can receive love is is by eating. Uh, But some of my favorite scenes is when he just can't bear what the, the, I guess, his his nephew, perhaps, is uh, eating at school and starts preparing these incredible, elaborate meals, first for him, but then for his entire class. Well, I'm not doing that, but I do. My daughter has challenged me to not repeat, you know, every day something different. So I'm pretty sure at her school, she's the only student to ever go to school with Spam Masubi one day and, you know, uh, Pasta Carbonara the next day and Cotoletta Milanese or uh, Polpetti, a lot of Italian, obviously. Uh, but also, uh, you know, I've done curries, I've done, uh, you know, she likes octopus and things like that. And that goes over really well at school. She shows up with a little lunchbox filled with the tentacles. Yeah. You know, she's a star in her class. I bet that's really cool, right? Like when I was a kid, that probably would have gotten me shoved into a locker. But now, I, kids are really cool now. Well, she goes to school with a lot of Italian kids. Okay. So uh, uh, that's not that, you know, the teachers are going to be okay with it because yeah. they're Italian as well. I'm just grateful she likes that stuff. Uh, I, I certainly never tried to convince her to, you know, oh, try it. It's good. It's that, that That's not what I do. She wants to eat pasta with butter every day. I'm, I'm happy to do that. But she's a weird kid. Did you expect that parenthood would involve so much cooking? Uh, I hoped so. I like it. I Believe it or not, I have a nurturing aspect of my personality that can turn into there's an element of insanienta to me. I mean – uh, because I was a professional for so long, I overorganize. You know, the poor kid and her, her best friend, the, her nanny's daughter is her best friend in the world. And essentially, in every every respect, her brother. They've grown up together since infancy. They're, they're seldom apart. 
the whole ex- there's an entire extended Filipino family who are basically part of our family and and uh, in and out of the house and you know with us on vacation there was all on holiday Christmas is is uh it's depicted in the book it's an odd admixture I, I will do a cycle menu for them you know I I plan the menu like a professional I've got like a purchase order list. Uh, cycle menu, what I'm going to do to merchandise, leftover, possible leftovers from dinner. And there is a part of me that wants to chase it around and say, you know, you know why don't you love me? You know, don't you like your food? And, you know. Do you expect, um, I mean, so the recipes in the book are written in a very casual sort of voicey conversational sort of way. As it should be. I, ha- I hate, I think the thing that I really hate most about food television and travel television it's like, who, who is this person talking to me? I happen to know them personally, and they're very intelligent and articulate and, and likable. Why are they talking to me in that TV voice? Why are they teasing out? Why are they reviewing what we just saw? Because I just saw it. And then teasing out what we're about to see. We just saw a burger with avocado. Next up, a burger with bacon. You, you don't talk to, like, why? And cookbooks also have this sort of tendency to first depict the food in in an unrealistic way in the photograph, uh, but then they assume you're going to get it right the first time. You know, eggs, even something as simple as Eggs Benedict. It's like place poached egg on top of, you know, Canadian bacon and muffin, not pay with holidays for holidays recipe, see page 126. And then you just it's a just list of ingredients with the instruction whisked together till emulsified. Well, most professionals screw up holidays the first few times. And I think you should be told that the way a chef would tell you. You know, look, maybe you don't want to make Eggs Benedict the first brunch you ever host at your house. You're probably going to screw it up. Or you should at least, I warn you that maybe you should practice your holidays four or five times so you're comfortable with it before you have the guests come over and stand there enraged while you break one, one batch after another. So I try to give people reasonable expectations, alternate plans, meaning do you really want to do this? Do you want to make it? so well that you would win a, a, a cooking competition among professionals? Or do you want to make it, which is how the cookbook probably tells you to do it, or do you want to make it the way most restaurants make it? You know, risotto being a perfect example. It's great to cook risotto to order. If you've got 45 minutes, you can spend in the kitchen of constant vigilance slowly stirring it. But most restaurants cook it halfway, chill it, lay it out, on, you know, spread it out on a half sheet pad, chill it. And when you place your order, they throw a handful into the into a, into a pot, add some hot stock and, some, and slowly and they bring it up. And it's quite good and no one ever notices. That's probably the kind of I mean, restaurants make those kind of compromises all the time. And it's probably if you're cooking for eight people at your house, that's a compromise you might want to do, too. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a good tip. And I think that people tend to cook, use cookbooks for dinner parties. I feel right. like even if you tell someone this is a cookbook for every day. And I'm super stressed doing dinner parties. I mean, tell me I'm going to do 500, you know, chicken or salmon. I'll do that literally, you know, not literally, but I will do that pretty much standing on my head. Yeah. Uh, no stress. Because that's, done it a million that's times. going to war. Tell it's me eight people thing. are coming for dinner who are friends and who are going to look me in the face as they eat. I'm really nervous, and I plan for that shit. I, I make lists, and I decide what's going to work, uh, what, what's the right choice so that I actually get to spend some time with my guests instead of sweating it out in the kitchen, praying it doesn't, you know, doesn't fuck up. And also so you can love them properly through the food. Well, all right, right? Just, y- y- yes. Yeah, I mean, that's true. I want them to be happy, and I want to enjoy the meal a little bit instead of being this sort of frantic 
you know, a uh, person hopping up and down every few minutes. So who are you hoping is going to read the book? I never think about that. No? I hope a bunch of people and that they're happy, obviously, but I don't picture a viewer or a reader. Uh, that's, that's, uh, I said, that's the road to madness. Uh, I never would have been able to read, or would, I never would have been able to write anything if I ever sort of tried to think about what people might like or what they might expect. That would have, I would have choked. It can be terrifying. Uh, I mean, obviously parents, it would be nice if parents, I mean, yeah. you know what I'm, what I'm, what I don't want to be, what I don't want to, I don't, I'm uncomfortable you know, if too many bros like me, you know, if I'm accused of cooking dude food, I really kind of, I find that hurtful. I really, I don't identify with that. I I, I don't like it. Um, uh, yeah, I, I just, uh, the, the, the target audience here is a nine-year-old. Yeah. Or, and yeah. It, it's... It- I mean, that's who's going to be eating this food. Your connection to that sort of bro culture, maybe bro is the wrong word. Maybe we should just say like masculinity or like this very yeah, sort look, of hyper masculine I'm uncomfortable with all of it. I mean, I think I come out of a, I mean, I come out of a culture. Kitchen Confidential was written looking back at a time where uh, I was coming out of, a, out of an environment that was uh, largely male. The level of discourse was over testosterone, to say the least. I mean, even women within that that society were. That, I mean, that was the yeah. the way one spoke. Uh, but it was always hyperbolic. It was always uh, um, self mocking. Um, I mean, no one actually sort of brags about their masculinity in the kitchen because we all know otherwise because we're standing next to you and we know how pathetic and unmanly you are. So I was always like uncomfortable with that. I'm still uncomfortable with it. You know, when I think about it, it's like, you know, should I really put a ribs recipe on? You know, people will be like, oh, that dude, that's, that's awesome. And I don't want to hear that. In your follow-up to Kitchen Confidential, Medium Raw, it felt like you did a little bit of intentional dismantling of that. Yeah. It felt like there was a lot of talking about the danger dangers of hubris and like the dangers of of pushing yourself too far past what the sort of normal limitations of well look i think a lot of people read kitchen confidential uh, and kind of took all of the role in spite of what was in plain sight uh, took away all of this stuff that 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 affirmed their own bad choices rather than the big picture i mean people would hand me drugs you know during book tour i mean uh, drugs clearly didn't work out well for me if you read Kitchen Confidential, but people would be like, oh, dude, that's awesome. I want to get high and, you know, snort coke through uncooked penne and do all of this shit, you know, myself. It's like, yeah, but, you know, wh- wh- what chapters did you not read? Um, yeah, I mean, I think Me- Medium Raw was uh, definitely uh, not to correct the record, but to remind people that I wasn't even that guy when I wrote Kitchen Confidential. I was writing about a period of time when, when you know, I might have been. And it became such a touchstone for that whole sort of early 2000s edifice of the chef is rock star. And, mm-hmm. and that that seems to be changing now, I think, in the culture. Do you see that? That the, uh, the rock star era is maybe not we coming to an end, rock but stars. shifting. Um, and I think anyone who ever took that seriously uh, is really in peril. Uh, if, you know, I've jokingly said before, but I mean it, if any of us really thought we could have been rock stars. If any of us could have played guitar, we sure as shit wouldn't have cooked. Um, 
We cook because there was nothing else for us, more often than not. That's changed. Now people cook in order to become rock stars, and that's delusional behavior. I mean, that ignores the very nature of the business, which is grinding repetition. And if you cannot submit to the life of where the first requirement is consistency and grinding repetition, then you're going to be a shitty chef. Uh, you know, the rock stars, the true rock stars of cooking were the, the people who, who were first, who changed the whole perception of what a chef should look like uh, and behave like. And they did it unintentionally. They couldn't help it. You know, Jeremiah Tower, Marco Pierre White, they were rock stars uh, because there were none like them before. Nobody wanted, there were no chefs that anyone wanted to fuck before uh, uh, Jeremiah and Marco. The, the, our, our image of what the chef was was this servile, uh, you know, dumpy uh, Italian probably with a twirling their mustache who would appear obsequiously at the table and with a popping gesture and, you know, what would what would you like, uh, signore, signore? I will do anything for you, you know, your species, spicy meatballs. And the last person whose opinion you wanted was, of course, the chef. They were, they were the backstairs help. I'll, I'll tell you what I want, my good man. Um, they at least changed that. That's true. And and now, though, there is this phenomenon and you've been, um, I think, thrillingly critical of some of the the sort of metastasizations of food culture as a result of that, like the way that this has moved into the era of the TV chef and the, you know, the sort of the Paula Deans and Guy Fieri's of the world, but also, um, you know, restaurant cooks who maybe make their hunger for fame a little bit too transparent? Uh, look, I think the most obvious one is, like on Top Chef, you see everybody has a signature haircut, a signature look. Uh, there are a few chefs out there. Look, Mario was the first, and it was totally cool then because he was breaking the breaking the mold in the, in the I don't give a fuck department. That look at the beginning, anyway, was an expression of I truly don't give a fuck. You're going to listen to my music. You know, I remember you go to Babo, and, and you know you're listening to you know the Clash at ear splitting volume, and you know a whole dining room full of miserable people with the, with the floor staff like begging Mario to turn it down. And he's like, no. Um, but now everybody's got their little look and their skateboard and signature pants and. Uh, you know, it's kind of some sad shit, you know, put in 20 years before you get a signature look. I, I don't know. Maybe I'm being a, a curmudgeon about this, but, you know, when you're 22 years old, you shouldn't be a signature or anything. Yeah, I think there's something. Get to... off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Like, I think, you know, no, I think there is something to this idea of like the the identity that grows organically over a many, many year career and life. Yes. And you sort of wake up one morning, you're like, oh, this is who I became. Yeah, I'm fucking 60. I'm not a fully formed adult yet. I'm still learning. I'm groping towards <laughs> some kind of, you know, something. Right. So at 22, it's like I'm a, I'm a ready-made product ready for, uh, you know, a multiple units. Uh, you know, I'm a little uh, dubious, let's right, say. Like a fully owned subsidiary of Bravo Media. Oh, and there's some really extreme examples of this uh, that I've worked with and I've seen and it's like... Oh, man. I mean, chefs with their own hair and makeup people. It's like that shit melts over a stove, you know. <laughs> yeah, like they're anywhere near a stove, please. <laughs> the, the, it's it, it's it's an it's a it's a weird world. I think like the chef kind of moving to the forefront of the culinary conversation is now. I mean, now it's old hat. It's been it's been fifteen or twenty yeah. years. And since in general, it's been, it's been good. Yeah, 
But it it's changed the way that the dining public relates to restaurants. I say the dining public as if that's not us. Like it's changed the way everybody has related to restaurants. And, and largely in a good way, because you go to a restaurant now, not because you, I feel like a steak, but you want to see what this particular chef is offering. You're interested in their opinion. Uh, you, you can picture someone being in the kitchen who's an individual with a voice, with something to say. Uh, you know more about food, chances are, than you did. You have higher expectations than you did. Those are all uh, those are all surely good things. But also, I mean, if you call around to uh, most of the uh, Michelin quality restaurants in this country and you ask them uh, how are things, they're all going to tell you the same thing: I can't find cooks. I cannot find qualified cooks. It is a crisis. We're cranking out chefs out of these predatory uh, cooking schools that have popped up all over America, like nobody's business. Um, why, you know, we're not exactly doing so fantastically well economically, and yet nobody wants, like, entry-level cooking jobs. No one. It's really hard. Do you think that this is something that is going to be solved through wages or through culture shifts? I feel like there are so many different camps about uh, how we're going <clears> to <throat> fix the crisis. Uh, I, I don't know. I think uh, at the end of the day, I, th I look, in my t t 30 years of cooking professionally, tw let's say 20 of those were as an employer-manager. I never had an American kid ever walk into any restaurant I ever worked in and say I'd like a, a dishwasher job or even a prep cook job, ever. Um, and I don't know whether we can reasonably expect people to do that, even if wages go up. Uh, I mean, it's always been an underpaid, uh, you know, bad benefits, if any, yeah. hard but I, I don't think that's it. I think expectations of these cooks who are rolling out of these schools are that I want to start at the top and transition quickly to my own, you know, food show. Yeah. I, I don't think it's just cooking, too. I mean, now I'm get, saying get off my lawn. But I feel like every industry, you know, we see it with people right. who, you know, apply for senior level jobs and they are straight out of college. And, you know, there is, uh, I think, an exciting sort of sense of I can do it and personal motivation that is coming out of this era, but it winds up manifesting itself in a difficult way. Yeah. Become a celebrity the time-tested way. Make a porn, you know, <laughs> have your mom leak it, uh, you know, hire a publicist, get in some car wrecks. So what's it like being famous? It's weird. It's not, I mean, it's not, a, it's, I can hardly complain about it, but it's weird. It's a weird and unnatural thing. You seem to stay really real. Uh, I think because I'm old, uh, <laughs> because it, it happened for me, you know, uh, after, you know, in my mid-40s. Your mom released your porn. And then <laughs> yes. So everybody had seen everything already. <laughs> uh, no, it's just I think, uh, you know, I knew what wasn't going to make my life better already. I'd already made a lot of the really big major mistakes. I, you know, it's like, oh, I'm famous. I could do cocaine now. You know, I already kind of had enough of that. Um uh, you know, I don't know. Um, it, did, it, it didn't and it doesn't thrill me. Uh, I'm not angry about it or resentful because it, it, it allows me this tremendous freedom to, you know, do these extraordinary things that few people are able to do. Like, you know, travel any place I want and eat all this great food and meet all of these people who I, 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 I look up to with hero worship. And um, 
you know, the worst thing about it is I mean, I'm running across an airport and I really got to piss and some really nice person stops me and wants a selfie when I'm like hopping up and down, you know. <laughs> it's like, I'm dying. Just bring them with you to the bathroom. It, look, it's happened. I mean, <laughs> really? people, yeah, I mean, I'm full, you know, midstream and the Urinal guy start to me starts to have a conversation. I'm like, you know, dude, <laughs> now is like kind of not the perfect moment. I mean, you kind of got to admire his complete lack of boundaries. Uh, alcohol will do that. Uh, yeah. yeah, I guess that makes it a little bit less admirable. It's not bravery then. <laughs> it's just booze. Let's talk a little bit about the show, which is in its eighth season? I seventh? think so. Some very high number as well, far we as make, TV we seasons shoot, go. We shoot one, we shoot from September through to the end of June, sometimes into July every year in basically one go. Uh, but the, what we shoot, 16 shows are split into two chunks that are released as independent seasons. So how the network sees it and builds it is different than how we who make it uh, see it. Um, I think it's our fourth year. But over the over the life of the show, it's evolved in a really fascinating way. You know, I think actually we can sort of track it by we do recaps of the show on, on Eater. And you can see our, our Facebook commenters over the years have started saying with increased frequency, I like this better when it had less politics. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so was this a choice or is it something that sort of no, grew organic? No, I just think it's a matter of I'm free to notice the elephant in the room. I don't know if I'm eating in Laos and a guy I'm eating with is missing an arm and a leg. It's worth mentioning or at least asking, hey, fella, what happened? And if he tells you, well, as a little kid, I was, uh, you know, I wasn't born during the Vietnam War, but, you know, as a little kid, I was wandering around in the, doing my farming with my dad. And I stepped on, you know, one of the, you know, three million tons of munitions left in our country and uh, unexploded ordnance. Look, that's not necessarily a political statement. It's a reality. And if you travel long enough to enough places and you have enough conversations with people, uh, you will notice those kinds of things. Who's eating? Who's not eating? Why are you eating full every single day? A big stack of bread and some watery beans. I'm not an activist. Uh, I, don't, I don't have an agenda. Uh, but if I see something, I'm going to talk about it. And if I feel, you know, there are some exceptions. I'm obviously... I have a bug up my ass about uh, Mexican immigration because I take that personally, and that's a, that is an issue for me. Um, you know, I'm very aware of and supportive of uh, people who've been living and working in this country uh, as solid uh, contributors to our and as essential, fundamental contributors to our economy and our workforce, and who I've come to know many of personally. Okay, that's something that's personal. But generally, I go into a country and I don't really have enough, I don't have a fully formed opinion or agenda, <clears throat> but I tend to notice things. And, I, and I've been given the freedom to notice and to wander away from the meal. I don't have to shove food in my face. You know, people will say, you know, stick to food, man. Like my food is like my, you know, my, my because I'm not what, a professional pundit, uh, my opinion is worthless. Look, I've been traveling the world for... 16 years now, uh, I've seen a lot of shit. Uh, I'm a citizen of the United States of America and a parent. Um, I am by far not the most educated man in the world, but you know, I have an opinion and I'm not going to tell you who to vote for, but, um, you know, I do notice things and I do have opinions. And if the guy I ate with in Russia, uh, who says, uh, no, I'm not worried about Putin killing me is shot to death on the front lawn of the Kremlin a few months later. I might mention that. I think it's worth 
you know, it's worth bringing up. Yeah. And, and food is politics, too. And politics is food. Yeah. I mean, like you were saying about eating fool and bread. I mean, you know, there's a reason that people eat the way that they eat, even if they don't know what if, the If lines the army are. controls the entire flour supply and the bakeries, you know, that's already a political thing. Well, even in the U.S., I mean, that is certainly the case. Like if, you know, there's military control of the, but like the farm bill, you know, like why are we eating white flour all the time? Or why is there corn everywhere? I mean, there's politics behind every single food decision we make. Yeah. Because politics is just survival and victory. Yeah. But I mean, look, I, 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 you know, I'm not out there looking to make a case for, for or against genetic modification. Um, but if I'm having dinner with somebody for whom that seems to be a, uh, an impactful uh, issue, uh, I'll let them talk about it. And your show has, you know, even though you say you're not an activist, there have been some pretty extraordinary results. Like you mentioned Laos. And wasn't it was that the episode where a, a senior Obama official said that they hadn't really been thinking seriously about the landmine crisis there and they saw your episode? And they're just like shit. They committed ninety million dollars to uh, to a bomb cleanup in that area, which is extraordinary. They told me that in Vietnam uh, when we were shooting with the president, and actually, the guy who came out to me from the White House staff told me that story, and I like completely went to pieces. I went, I completely lost it because he said, "So we really hadn't been thinking about that, or weren't aware of it." I don't know what his words were, and then he just sort of casually said, "So I guess you have done some good after all." I completely lost it. I mean, I was just, I, I was a fucking mess afterwards. I, I was not in no way, I was in no way prepared to have to be accused of anything like that, you know? It, it, it messed me up. I, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a so tremendous So I'm going to become like Bono now and like wander from disaster to disaster doing good and no, no, that I'm not That doesn't sound actually. insufferable at all. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like you to join my charity, you know, We Are the Cooks or something like that. Jesus, never. I I don't do that stuff. Well, so your show has also done, I think, a a huge amount of service in terms of um, just opening the eyes of of the viewers here in the U.S. to the humanity of of human experience. I think there's such a an us versus them perspective that is often taken with regards to the rest uh, of the world. I think it's useful to. For Americans who don't have passports and who haven't traveled much to see, to at least get a picture of what people are like in these countries that we read bad news about all the time. So when news happens, you have some clue of who we're talking about, that they're not just stacks of brown bodies, that 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 they're people. You saw them with their kids. You saw them cooking someone you know, maybe me, dinner. Um you know, if you remember the Westmoreland remark years ago, and when the, the Vietnam War, well, William Westmoreland said this whole thing about trying to explain why we were not doing well in Vietnam. He said, well, you're Asiatics. They just don't value human life the same way we do in the West. I mean, it was a notorious and grotesque thing to say. Uh, it explains a lot about his success in the field. <laughs> uh, but I think a lot of people assume that. Uh, there's so much awfulness happening in the continent of Africa and other parts of the world, uh, the Middle East and elsewhere that we think, well, they can't possibly value. Well, maybe take a look, spend a little time. Uh, that's valuable. On the other hand, there are plenty of dick jokes in my show, and I'd like to talk about Let's those. talk about dick jokes. <laughs> no, I love I, dick I, jokes. I just, yeah, I'm a little uncomfortable with, uh, with uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not out there looking to do good. I'm looking to tell stories, and I'm looking to let people 
uh, talk about their lives. And to the extent that it's not me talking in the show, I, I, I'm happier and happier. We have a sort of game going on with the producers and the shooters. Um, we used to do a tidy sum up at the end of every show where I'd have some little VO or I'd be like, I think we've learned something today. You know, we can all, you know, maybe we can all reach out and be together in the end. Now we really try to let always end the show with somebody else saying something that kind of drops a truth bomb or better yet leaves us hanging. There's this great end to a film I really like uh, called uh, Killing Them Softly, the Brad Pitt produced film, where it just ends in a in a really inconclusive way with a, a casual comment that just sort of resonates. I, I really like that. And we also push ourselves to see how long we can go of total silence, no dialogue, no one talking, and certainly no me in VO. And I think we're put, because TV hates that. They're, they're terrified of it, they don't like it. You know, someone should all be yammering and reminding you to stay tuned all the time. I think we're up around three and a half minutes um, long sequences where the camera is just drifting around looking at life and maybe music playing. Uh, I, I think there's a competition among the producers and editors to see how long they can go before we can't possibly go on anymore. Those are some like serious storytelling techniques, you know, like ending on the the dramatic kicker quote that kind of throws everything that came before a little bit into doubt and, yes. you know, pushing the reader out of, or the viewer or the we, audience we, out of their comfort zone. I, I don't want one that, that settles matters. There was, when we did the Jerusalem uh, Palestine episode, uh, the first edit ended with a cutaway to flowers growing on a hill. And I was, I went fucking berserk. I, I was, I became a monster. I was just like, this show is not going to end with fucking flowers growing on a hill. Like okay. puke on the ground right. like gonna, this. Oh my god! I don't know <laughs> what show did you just watch, but I don't see a lot of flowers growing. It's a symbol of hope. hope Tony. for a new day. Like, Maybe we can all just, you know, we'll frolic in the fields together. Blossom together and, like the flowers. Yeah, not in this lifetime. <laughs> so, how does the the your experience in you sort of the question of like choosing who to feature and finding your fixers and finding your stories connect to authenticity. I think that that's such a buzzy word right now in the world of food and American diners are starting to be so excited and open to the cuisine of other cultures. But it often comes with this burden of only wanting something that is like scare quotes authentic. Yeah, well, I, look, you said it perfectly. I mean, uh, on one hand, you want authentic Korean. Meanwhile, the, the, the second generation of Koreans are all doing these wonderful creative uh, hybrids. And if you're talking authentic Korean, you're talking about dishes like buda jjigae anyway, which are these mutants, uh, mutation dishes, beloved mutation dishes that came out of the Korean War. And um, So it's an increasingly meaningless term. It's an instinct I admire, and I, I could be insufferably snobbish about an authentic cacio e pepe, for instance, just because I feel personal about it. I don't, I don't want to see chicken chunks in my cacio e pepe, right? right? Or truffle oil. I don't think you can improve certain, you know, I'm a snob about like certain things that shouldn't be ever improved or can't be improved by man or God, in my view. But maybe but, that's integrity, not authenticity. Yeah, like I'm the, uncomfortable with authentic. The word is authenticity, integ integrity means not giving a fuck, basically, in my view. It's like, I believe this is the way and I'm going to stick with it. I, I, I think uh, to go beyond that, you, you get complicated. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't know. We, we, we do crave what we perceive to be authentic. 
But there's an aspect of I know and you don't, you know. I know what that's not authentic, but I found this place all the way out in the edge of Queens that they serve the authentic version. So, have it, didn't you see my Instagram? You know, right, right. So like it, it this idea that like it carries virtue along right. with the. And I'm part of that problem. I mean, I I will acknowledge my guilt and my role in this in this this phenomenon uh, because I am happy in you know authentically dirty. Uh, you know, Southeast Asian noodle shops on the other side of the world. So that's auth- that's automatically authentic by in that way. But maybe it's easier to define it by what it's not. Like this idea that there is probably also a noodle shop that's within a mile of that that has been scrubbed and sanitized and is constructed entirely for like white tourists from America. Yeah. And that's not what that is. It's yeah. It, it look. It's a. It is. It, it is. However, an increasingly meaningless. Uh, you know, as we all move around the earth, it's probably becoming an increasingly meaningless uh, distinction. So how does that, which is, I think, so fascinating, the sort of increasing, like, porosity of our borders and open immigration and, and people just sort of flowing from one place to another, often, like, you know, it used to be that if you if you move from one country to another, you moved your entire family there and your family now lived there forever. Right. And now there seems to be a lot of fluidity and these... Yeah, I don't. I, I don't know how to say it without saying authentic. The these things that we have defined as cuisines, right? Like there's right. Korean cuisine and there's Lebanese cuisine or whatever it is. You know, you can get sushi in Istanbul, and right. what does that mean? I mean, would you ever put a, a Turkish sushi restaurant on the show? Uh, you look, never say never because you know. Look, the, the most extreme example is. is you know, is pasta with tomatoes in it authentic? I mean, it's not an Italian ingredient. It, 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 and, I mean, how far do you back do you have to go to be authentic? I mean, I know how I feel in my heart. There's 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 obviously a line that that when you cross it, I get cranky. But I'm an old fuck, so uh, what's the line? You know, there's certain hybrids where I'm really super dubious. Uh, pastas, I'm very. You know, I'm very protective of the pastas that make me really happy. You know, I don't want to see pho dicked around with. It makes me unhappy. Um, I have seen some like Japanese Italian hybrids that have been really awesome. But generally speaking, uh, you know, I, I, look, if it's done cynically, I guess, if it's done as a marketing scheme, you know, of course, I'm going to react negatively. Yeah. If, if 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 it's a, you know half Italian half Japanese kid who grew up grew up eating those things, or someone like Dave Chang, you know I'm 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 interested I'm I'm intrigued I'm I'm, I'm hopeful. Well, this seems like the same exact thing as what frustrates you or doesn't frustrate you about a chef achieving fame, right? Like you come by it organically, you give it the time, it grows, right. it doesn't come out of a focus group. Or you're just gifted and you're you're expressing what you want to do. I mean, I think Mission Chinese is probably the purest example of that. I mean, Danny is in no way uh, – I mean, he's what, co- Korean by birth, but but in no other way Korean, uh, cooking kind of Chinese food with a Filipina chef uh, with pizza and roast beef on the menu and all of it's awesome and fun and, and – and actually a perfect expression of uh, – if there's any restaurant that's a perfect expression of New York and the New York experience, that's it. And so, it's from San Francisco. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is, like, and perfect. it's super fun. <laughs> and uh, and I'm happy there. So, you know, there, there, are, there are no rules. All we can hope for is that you're happy there. <laughs> yeah. And I am happy there reliably. <laughs> well, Tony, on that note, it's time for the lightning round. Oh, good. I love lightning round. Um, and today – 
the lightning round questions will be asked by my co-host, Greg Morabito, who couldn't be here today to actually talk to you in person, but has pre-recorded some questions that we're going to play for you. Excellent. Hey, Tony, it's Greg Morabito, the other host of the Eater Upsell, a longtime listener, first time caller. I have a few lightning round questions for you. There's a lightning round question number one. Yes. If you had to repeat one kitchen job over again, which one would it be? Oh, one kitchen job over again. My last one at Leal, uh, I was happy doing the work, uh, the kind of food I probably should have been doing my whole career. What's a skill you wish you'd learned as a young man but never did? Uh, I wish I could play funk bass. If I could play funk bass, I never would have done the rest of this shit. Can you play non-funk bass? I cannot play bass at all. I'm completely inept with all musical instruments. But it, in another life, I, I would play, I would be Flea or Bootsy Collins or uh, Larry Graham, and I would just play awesome funk bass in, in a not particularly successful uh, funk band sometime in the, like, late 60s, early 70s. I'd be the bass player in, in, in Sly and the Family Stone, and I, w- I would die happy. I Early, could, but happy. I could totally see you doing that. You fit right in. <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> okay, next question. Which person in the food world do you wish you knew better than you do? Oh, that's a very warm-hearted question. I wish me and Jiro Ono were real buds. You know, hanging out, hammering back drinks. Uh, yeah. Does he have buds who he hammers back drinks with? He does. Yeah. They're, they're Japanese and Joel Robuchon, who I think is the only Westerner who he really admires and, and respects. Um, I mean, he thinks well of me, I think, but we're not, you know, hanging out. You don't like text at 3 a.m., you no, up no. kind of thing? No, no, no. <laughs> What's up, bro? <laughs> you should start doing Snapchat him. Do like the dog filter. <laughs> well, it's funny because, you know— um, I had a kind of a tough experience with him. Uh, he was very unhappy with the show. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I guess I don't know what's up. And then I'm, every t- every time I put, I look at the Quest Love's Instagram, he's there hanging out with uh, with Jiro. You know, they're like high-fiving behind the bar. And I'm like, whoa. Do you feel jealous? I am jealous. Total yes, FOMO, yes, right? Yes, I am totally jealous. Man, you're, you're human. You're so real. <laughs> I feel jealous all the time. I like, I can't even look at Instagram. I'm choked with envy. It's all, constant. All the time, yeah bile in my throat. I'm just like, how are these people having amazing lives? Why am I not there? Welcome to my world. It's great. So good. I love it. I'm so happy. All right. (laughs) What's next? (laughs) What's one thing that people don't understand about you? Um, gee, uh, I don't know. Uh, I'm a pretty good dad. That it, be, it means a lot to me. That it's it's. I am no longer the star of this movie or any movie. It's uh, it's all about the girl. What does it mean to be a good dad? Uh, well, I, look, I don't know how other parents feel, but how I felt this, you know, the second I saw my daughter corkscrew out was I am really no longer the star of this picture, and that was both a, a shocking realization and a huge relief. You know, to realize it's really always going to be her first. Uh, to give yourself over to somebody like that, uh, uh, to have every decision you make in your life through that prism, uh, you know, to enjoy, you know, to be the father of a, of a young girl in particular is a really glorious thing. That's lovely. Now I'm getting emotional. Okay, well, I, th- I think we have one more question, which will probably radically change the mood in the room. 
So hit us with it. Would you rather cook brunch hungover every day for the rest of your life or live at LaGuardia for the rest of eternity like that guy in the terminal? I think I'm going to go with LaGuardia. They've got better food there than they used to. Uh, the food has improved somewhat. I, they're making some renovations, and you would have a constant influx of people, whereas if I was making brunch, A, the smell alone, I, I couldn't take it. I, I, I just I can't go back to that. It's the smell of the, the worst, most desperate times of my life. I'm a very good brunch cook, but that would be worse than a death sentence to me. That would be like, you know, uh, you know real purgatory. Uh, no, I think I would be more hopeful with more possibilities for something, anything uh, uh, stuck at LaGuardia. As, as awful as that might sound, for me, uh, really the lowest, most shameful, painful, uh, hopeless times in my life were when I was working as a uh, under an alias as a as a brunch cook. My alias, by the way, was Napoleon Bourdain because I needed the letter N on the check. Why? Um, I, I I'm not. There's there's some statute limitations limitations <laughs> questions here, okay. so I don't, I don't want to really go into that. We but, can go into this but, off uh, record. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so LaGuardia rather than brunch. Uh, right. no, no contest. Oh my god, just the smell of like uh, spilled omelet eggs, like fo- like sort of souffleing on the top of the stove. Mm-hmm. Uh, dank steam table water, home fries, uh, the sickly sweet smell of uh, French toast cooking. Uh, your fingers turning red from those horrifying little strawberry fans and orange and the orange twists. Uh, even the bus pants coming out, coming back with their half-filled mimosas, and that's just a hell. It's just a, just a, a nineteenth circle of hell. Okay, we won't make you do it. Please. Well, on that note, um, Tony, it was so great having you by the Eater Up Cell. It was fun. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming by, and um, people can read your book everywhere. Anthony Bourdain Appetites, a cookbook, um, by Anthony Bourdain and Laurie Wolliver. Thank, Thank you, you so much. The Eater Upsell is recorded in Vox Media's studios in beautiful Midtown Manhattan and also sometimes in our satellite studio in sunny Los Angeles, California. Our producers are Patrick Bulger and Maureen Giannone. Our studio team is Alex Ulreich and Miles Ewell. Our associate producer is Kendra Vaculin. Our associate producer and editor extraordinaire is Daniel Janine. And your hosts are me, Helen Rosner, and that guy over there, Greg Morbido. But the most important person in the creation of this entire thing is you. Thank you, beautiful listener, for being exactly who you are.